So um, we're going to be in Daniel 11 uh, tonight. Uh, we'll be finishing up chapter 11, beginning in verse 36. And it's a shorter section, so unlike last week, this week, you can uh, have it in front of you as we're going through it. Uh, there's not too much to get uh, snagged on. And once we, once we read that together, we'll be kind of walking through uh, a little bit of what's going on here in the text and then a little bit of how it relates to other texts that we've already read uh, in the book thus far. So Daniel 11, and I'll be reading beginning in verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and with costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. And he shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with a great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. All right, so we're going to pause there. Uh, technically, the, the dialogue of the uh, text, the uh, unit, actually goes into chapter 12, verse 4, um, and we will look at chapter 12, uh, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 uh, in just a moment when we get there. But for now, uh, we have to deal with an issue uh, that I, that's where we're not going to talk about the resurrection yet, which is present in chapter 12. Uh, we're going to deal just with the first little bit of the text to try to tidy, tidy that on up. So uh, the, the main idea of the text tonight, uh, like all these texts in Daniel, um, is not necessarily about the prophecy itself, the technicality of it, uh, but more so about the thrust or the encouragement that is usually found somewhere in the prophecy. Uh, we saw in, uh, in, in other places where Daniel is called beloved by God, uh, where he's told he's going to endure, uh, where the people are encouraged to remain steadfast. Um, and here, uh, that, that promise is a promise of resurrection, uh, which we will uh, get to uh, in chapter 12. Uh, it's in verses 1 through 4. Uh, but first, uh, we're going to have to talk a little bit about what's going on here with this king. Um, and I mentioned last week uh, that the king from verse, uh, in, in verse 35, that uh, 36 picks up on, uh, is a, a historical character named Antiochus Epiphanes. And there's uh, almost uh, universal agreement that the, the character in verse 35 of Daniel chapter 11 uh, is this historical character, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, uh, I mentioned last week, that's actually one of the main things that the book of Daniel has going for and against it. 
uh, because in, up until verse 35 of chapter 11, the predictions are so accurate historically that scholars must conclude it has to have been written after the time. Uh, and that is until verse 36, where the language actually shifts, uh, and actually none of verse 36 through the end of chapter 11 is true of Antiochus Epiphanes. So uh, the best critical scholars, what they will say about the book of Daniel, and by critical scholars I'm talking about non-believers, people who don't believe uh, in the Old Testament as, as the word of God, uh, they will come to the text and they will say, well, clearly whoever wrote at least this chapter in Daniel, because they would also say it's some compilation of other authors, whoever wrote this chapter is someone who is writing during the exploits of Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, maybe shortly thereafter his fall, records all of these things, historical accuracy, um, but right before Antiochus dies, this person is now going to, let's say in verse 36, start trying to predict the future. So they're recording historical events up until verse 35. In verse 36, now they're kind of giving it their best shot uh, and, and going for it. And that's why verse 36 through the end of chapter 11 doesn't quite fit with Antiochus is because there's no such thing as prophecy. And so they were just guessing, which is why there's some incongruencies there. Uh, and you would say, well, if you met Antiochus in person or historically, uh, these would be fair uh, guesses about him, right? Um, he, he's, he's described as someone who's going to blaspheme against the gods. He's going to raise himself against other gods. Uh, he's going to do all kinds of uh, things. And eventually he's going to defeat Egypt and the king of the north, the Syrians, and kind of rule in this, uh, this land of, of the Jewish people. Uh, namely there you see it's, uh, uh, he will go into the blessed land. And so you would assume, if you were living at the time of Antiochus, he might have accomplished all these things, but actually he doesn't. Antiochus dies shortly after conquering the temple, shortly after defaming the temple, um, and, and he dies suddenly, kind of without uh, much warning, uh, in a quick rebellion, and he's, he's put to death. And so people conclude, well, verse 36 is really prediction, uh, and so it no longer has to do with this, this historical guy. So what's going on in the text? Well, uh, the, the real problem is that this person, in verse 36, is also called a king, uh, more specifically, and the king. Uh, and you'll notice that the person that uh, I said was Antiochus in, in the previous section is also called the king. And so uh, then, then there's a the question, well, if this is really Antiochus, we might have to conclude uh, it's uh, some kind of failure on the part of Daniel's prophecy. And so there's a couple of solutions. I'll put one in front of you tonight, and then when we get into uh, our discussion time, we'll talk about other options of putting this together. Uh, in verse 36, what I think happens, and, and what I'm going to argue happens, is that the author shifts, after a focus on Antiochus, uh, to uh, an amplification based on the description of Antiochus that's going to magnify all of the exploits of Antiochus into a, a characterization. And what I mean by that, uh, similarly to what we saw in uh, chapter 7, uh, where you have the first three beasts, which are described as, as not quite real animals, but some amalgamation of real animals. Um, and then you have this fourth beast, which is described as more beastly than all the others, right? You have this fourth beast that comes around and it is, it is, it's indescribable, but it's, it's like the other beast, but worse, okay? And here you have something similar in verse 36 and on. You have some, a king who's like Antiochus, but worse. A king who is like the king who we just talk, talked about is going to oppose the Jewish people, cut down the sacrifice, but worse. Uh, and then the question is, well, who could that possibly be? And one of the, one of the things that uh, is true about this text um, is that this king, also like all the other kings we've met uh, and rulers who've been warring during Daniel 11, if you'll turn your attention to verse 45, uh, 
You'll see, although this king will pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, uh, which means somewhere between the coast and the holy city of Jerusalem, uh, he's going to pitch his tent there, yet, yet even though he's going to claim this as his dominion, he shall come to his end with none to help him. So just like all the other kings, if you're going to walk away with anything, the big picture here is that this king comes to an end, like all the other kings before them, uh, because they're not actually sovereign over anything. They're just uh, on very tight leashes, as it were. There's an appointed time. We saw with that final king in uh, verse 11, or sorry, chapter 11, verses uh, 35 and, and before. And in verse 36 and on, this king also has a time limit on them. Um, but this king is different and worse. And, and you'll see here in the text how they're worse. So, uh, for instance, um, one of the things that they do that's worse than the kings before them uh, is in verse 36. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And he shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. Now, in Daniel's mind, the God of gods is Yahweh. It's, it's his God, right? He's the one who's over all the other powers. And so this, this king is going to exalt himself over every God, even, even the Most High himself. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. Now, what's clear about the indignation is not quite clear here, um, but you can hold that in the back of your mind. What is the indignation? For what is decreed, what is told about this king, will be done. Verse 37, he will pay no attention to the gods of his father. So here's something different about this king as well. Uh, He doesn't worship or pay attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. Now that's strange language, but uh, the best sense of it is the god that is, let's say, worshipped or revered by women. This king is going to not, let's say, acknowledge that God either. So he's not going to acknowledge the God of his fathers or the God of, let's say, the women in the land. And now that doesn't make much sense because in Babylon and in the other ancient Near Eastern religions, uh, men are the uh, priests unto God uh, for almost every empire except for the Roman Empire where you have women serving in the Athenian temple as heirs and worshiping of the gods. So this king is going to be different. They're going to not acknowledge any of these other gods. He shall not pay attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all. So what's, what's happening here in the text is this king is doing self-deification, self-worship. Not only do they ignore the other gods, they magnify themselves over and above the other gods. And you might say, well, didn't Nebuchadnezzar do something like that when he built a statue of himself? And haven't we kind of already seen that? Not quite. Because what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is not building a statue to worship himself, let's say, as opposed to Marduk or as opposed to Nebo, the the gods of the Babylonians, what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is asserting himself as worshipful and Nebuchadnezzar is, let's say, the deputized authority of Marduk or Nebo on the earth. That's what the king of the ancient world would have been, the deputized uh, reigning force for the god. So to worship the king would be to worship the god. You see the same thing uh, in the book of Esther uh, with King uh, Artaxerxes. We're worshiping him or, uh, or paying awe and reverence to him is akin to paying reverence to his God. Uh, what's different about this king is he's going to, uh, in contrast with the worship of his gods, put himself above, let's say, at the exclusion of uh, these other gods. So this is a self-deification. And he shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, meaning he's going to put his trust probably in weaponry or might as opposed to the gods of his fathers. Uh, and he's going to essentially serve a God whom his fathers did not know and honor them with gold and with silver. Well, that makes sense because if he is worshiping himself as God, 
that would be a God that his fathers had not worshipped or had not known. So all of these things are, let's say, ways in which this king gets worse. Uh, And then if you glance down to verse 40, you'll notice that this king uh, goes back to war against the king of the south and the king of the north. Now, why that's significant is because it tells us that this king is not one of the kings of the south or one of the kings of the north, which Antiochus Epiphanes was. He was, remember, a king who takes rulership over the north, goes up against the Egyptians in the south, and then finally, after conquesting all of them, goes and destroys the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this king, who we're talking about now, uh, is actually going to have to go up against the king of the north and against the king of the south. Uh, And ultimately, they will deal a fatal blow to the king of the south, the southern king, Uh, but not in their first attempt, but ultimately they will triumph over the king of the south. And you'll see there in verse 43, he will become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and of all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. Now the, the king who finally conquers and let's say plunders the Egyptians with a final defeat, uh, this is actually something that we know historically because it happens at the time of Cleopatra, right? The Roman army prevails over the Egyptians Uh, And Antony and Cleopatra make their final attempt to defeat the Roman Empire, and they lose, and they commit their lover's suicide together. And then you have the Roman Empire dominating and essentially plundering the Egyptians. The Egyptians become a vassal state to Rome. And so you have all these things kind of coming to play. And then the last last piece that you have is this, uh, verse 45, the the pitching of the palatial or heavenly tents. Let's say the declaration that this is my territory. And you'll notice that this happens in the place of the holy mountain. Now, the only people who we know that would do this uh, and kind of possess or claim the land uh, of the Israelites uh, would be the Romans up until the time of Christ, where they kind of have this occupation over the people of God, uh, where they kind of pitch their tent, as it were. They have domination over all this land uh, at the time uh, of the first century AD. Now, all of that is to say what I think is happening here in the text Uh, is this final king is going from Antiochus all the way into Rome. So Rome is worse than Antiochus. Rome, actually the emperors of Rome, do this self-deification thing. They do what's called emperor worship. Uh, And they do this uh, and they promote themselves over the gods of the other Roman deities which you can worship, and the emperor becomes the god of gods. Uh, And you see this actually with Caesar Augustus as the first Roman emperor who does this. Uh, And then afterwards, uh, Nero does it even worse than him, and Diocletian does it even worse than him, and all of them uh, deify themselves. And they worship, uh, or they have themselves be worshipped over and above the other deities of the Roman Empire. So this final prophecy here then uh, is, let's say, terminating with with Rome. And you'll notice then what's interesting, just like all the other texts, there's this nugget of hope at the end of verse 45, yet he shall come to his end. So this king will come to an end, And none will help him. And at that time shall arise Michael. This is chapter 12, verse 1. Michael, remember, he's the defender of the Israelite people. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Remember, he's talking to Daniel. So that's the Israelite people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some, some to everlasting life and some to shame and to everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteous will be like the stars forever and ever. 
But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So here you have this uh, language. It's actually the only place, actually, in the entire Old Testament where this promise of a resurrection occurs. And you'll notice there's a twofold resurrection a resurrection unto everlasting life or a resurrection unto everlasting shame and contempt. So here you have it in Daniel, it's the only time elsewhere in the entire Hebrew Bible where uh, resurrection is, let's say, predicted or prophesied. Uh, and here it serves as a comfort for Daniel. And he's told that all of that stuff's going to take place uh, within uh, relative time to the fall of this, this fourth king. Um, and I, I want you to key into some of the language uh, that gets used here. And this is in verse 2, or sorry, verse, verse 1 of chapter 12. Uh, and it says, And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. Now, you might recognize that language, or you might not. I want to turn your attention to where that language is elsewhere echoed. And if you'll turn with me to Matthew 24, that language is actually echoed there. And then uh, it's chapter 24, and uh, really in verse 21 is where the quotation comes from. And he's describing, right, the, the abomination of desolation, the, fl- the flight of the people in Jerusalem. Verse 21, for there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Here Jesus is alluding to or quoting from this kind of same idea in Daniel, uh, where, the, where the language that's used is, uh, there will be a time of trouble such as never has been there from the inception of the nation uh, until that time. And what's interesting about that, it's a very awkwardly worded sentence, even in English. It's because it's awkwardly worded in Aramaic and Hebrew, and it's awkwardly worded in the Septuagint, and it's awkwardly quoted in the New Testament text as well. So it's, a, it's an awkwardly worded text, probably because it's preserving the original language of, of reference. Okay, let's put that all together. So you have this idea that at the time of this final king, something's going to happen to cause the fall of the king, uh, which will, let's say, lead to or culminate in this hope of resurrection, everlasting life, resurrection, and unfortunately also everlasting shame and punishment with that same kind of advent of events. Now that shouldn't actually be all that strange to us. Although it's a a zoomed-in picture, I want to take you to where else we've already seen this picture in Daniel, uh, and then the, this text actually isn't all that surprising. So if you look with me in Daniel chapter 2, earlier in the text, we've already been told something of this timing. You remember Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has uh, had this dream of some weird-shaped statue. Uh, and there's a head of gold and arms of silver and all this stuff. And I just want to look at... Uh, two notes uh, of importance here. So uh, if, you, if you look at uh, verse 40 of Daniel chapter 2, uh, he's interpreting the vision, right? Remember the vision has this feet made up of uh, clay and iron, kind of a mixed thing. Verse 40, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these, all the previous kingdoms. And as you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, 
but some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as the iron does not mix with the clay. There's that prediction of destruction of that kingdom, right? It kind of is, it comes to an end. Verse 44, and in the days of those kings, the God of heavens will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that that stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be done after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. So in Daniel chapter 2, you have that statue, uh, which is smashed by the rock, which comes and lands. Uh, and then, you know, when Daniel looks again, this rock has become a mountain, which uh, has finally reigned over all the kingdoms. You have the same kind of thing happening here in Daniel 11, where this final king comes to an end with none to help them. And at that time, what's going to happen is, what's going to take place is, uh, the hope of resurrection will be realized and established, and it will be consummated. Uh, and you will have this appointment to everlasting life for some, an appointment to everlasting contempt for others. Uh, and then he says uh, to Daniel, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So that's, it's, he's telling Daniel, this is way in the future, way in your future, Daniel, but write it down anyway, because it's going to be a prophet at some point in the future for someone. So you have all these things together. So I think Daniel chapter 11, best understood in the context of the other visions in Daniel uh, this final king being the Roman Empire, who's the final antagonist against the people of God, right until Christ comes, and Christ then establishing through his death, burial, and resurrection the ultimate kingdom, an everlasting kingdom which will never be taken away, uh, which, let's say, imposes on and establishes everlasting life, uh, ultimately in its culmination where the everlasting life will be vindicated, uh, and those uh, who are resurrected will be to an everlasting life, and those who are uh, resurrected, some will be for an everlasting contempt. This all takes place through Christ's work and ministry and happens in the first century. I, as I said before in Daniel chapter 9, uh, the conviction that I have is that this stuff culminates with the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and thus all of these things uh, chronologically, I think, fit uh, within that time frame. Now, uh, one last piece to, to discuss, and then we'll kind of get into some technical stuff when we get into discussion. And that is this note of resurrection. Uh, something we don't, I think, often appreciate is how revolutionary the idea of resurrection would have been. If you are a Jew and you have progressive revelation going on, uh, there's no hope for resurrection, let's say, in the book of Proverbs. There's no hope of resurrection in the book of Genesis. There's no hope of resurrection in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. There's hope of a promised land. There's hope of a good life. There's hope of a life lived faithfully unto God. Uh, there's hope of being buried with a legacy and with offspring in this world. Uh, there's no hope of resurrection. Uh, there is some hope, some potential hope of future vindication, although the text doesn't quite really spell out what that means. Uh, and then you get here in Daniel, when the people are under the, th under the thumb of the oppressors the most, they're at their most exposed, most exiled, most desperate, and you get this note of their most promising outlook yet, uh, which is a bodily resurrection of future vindication unto an everlasting life, a return then uh, to a state which was better than the state in which they were in when they left God's good earth. Now you think about that, and you think about all that we discussed in Daniel chapter 11, which we won't look at now, but remember how much 
persecution and oppression and punishment that people are about to face. Uh, and then you have this note of, well, you're going to be appointed to an everlasting life when that's all said and done. Uh, and this echoes uh, not of just suffering well in this life so that you can be faithful unto God uh, and be found faithful, uh, but actually that you can be vindicated in your faithfulness to God uh, by means of a, a resurrection. Now, Daniel uh, is not clear about all that the resurrection entails. Uh, we'll actually need texts like 1 Corinthians 15 to start flushing that stuff out for us, uh, but this is how progressive revelation works in Scripture. Uh, you have this uh, initial understanding that people die, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, you have this initial understanding of blessing looking like long life. Uh, and then you have this culminated understanding that uh, blessing uh, unto long life is actually blessing unto everlasting life back into the land of the living and a glorified land of the living, a return to Eden. This is kind of the whole New Testament hope. Uh, and I think we uh, should appreciate that when we read Daniel chapter 12. Because when we read resurrection, we're like, of course. Of course, everyone should get that. You know, we've read the New Testament, Daniel, we get it. But this is the first promise of the resurrection in the Old Testament, and thus it would come as a shock and as a really amplified promise to the people of God. And I think uh, we ought to appreciate that development uh, in the text. Now, with that being said, um, let me just close uh, our time together in some prayer, and then we will get into some discussion. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this text. Uh, we pray for uh, your understanding uh, to be slow to speak, uh, quick to listen, uh, and that we would be uh, students of your word first and foremost. And we pray for your grace now as we move into uh, some discussion, and we pray in all these things that you would be with us uh, to help us to see uh, what is beautiful and lovely about your word, and ultimately, Lord, that we would learn to love you more uh, by seeing your text rightly. We pray this all in your name. Amen.